I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. You wanted law and order in this town. You've got it. Randy! 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 Where's the rest of me? Those who would trade our freedom for the soup kitchen of the welfare state have told us they have a utopian solution of peace without victory. They call their policy accommodation. And they say if we'll only avoid any direct confrontation with the enemy, he'll forget his evil ways and learn to love us. There are cynics who say that a party platform is something that no one bothers to read and it doesn't very often amount to much. Whether it is different this time than it has ever been before, I believe the Republican Party has a platform that is a banner of bold, unmistakable colors with no pale pastel shades. A while back along the campaign trail, I was doing a question and answer session. When a little girl, couldn't have been more than six or seven years old, stood up, asked a question I'd heard before, but coming from her, it threw me. She said, why do you want to be president? I will not make age an issue of this campaign. I am not going to exploit, for political purposes, my opponent's youth and inexperience. March 30th, 1981. Mr. President! We hear much from Moscow about a new policy of reform and openness. Some political prisoners have been released. Some economic enterprises have been permitted to operate with greater freedom from state control. Are these the beginnings of profound changes in the Soviet state, or are they token gestures intended to raise false hopes in the West? We welcome change and openness. The advance of human liberty can only strengthen the cause of world peace. General Secretary Gorbachev, if you seek peace, if you seek prosperity for the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe, 
Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Ronald Wilson Reagan, February 6, 1911 to June the 5th, 2004, was an American politician who served as the 40th president of the United States from 1981 to 1989. The life of Ronald Reagan, coming soon on 10 American Presidents. I'm Chris Stewart from the History of China podcast, and I approve this message. It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. She was the people's princess. We shall fight on the beaches. Oh, hey, man, these are the things that made England. We shall fight on the landing ground. These are the things that made I England. I have a body, but of a weak and feeble woman. These are the things that made England. And a king of England, too. These are the things that made England. Cry God for Harry! And these are the things that made England. England! And St. George! These are the things that made England. Hello and welcome to the Things That Made England, the show where we discuss some of the key points of history, culture and anything else that might come to our minds that uh, we believe can constitute something that made England what she is today. Concise round, sir. (laughs) So this is uh, Luke Baxter speaking to... Uh, Royfield Brown. And uh, how are you this morning, uh, Royfield? Uh, where I am, it's not the morning, but no. Uh, uh, no, it's the afternoon. It's very much the afternoon. I've been reading up about an ancient, forgotten, formational, foundational character of England, because I think you're going to propose him this, yes, this week. I am indeed. Mm. King Athelstan. Hello. In his Chronicle of the English Kings, written in the 12th century, the historian William of Malmesbury says of one monarch, the firm opinion among the English remains that no one more just or more learned ever governed the kingdom. This paragon of royal virtue is King Athelstan, who reigned for 14 years during the first half of the 10th century. Yes, he is a bit sort of forgotten, isn't he? When I was sort of jenning up for this, I did a bit of... uh... Vox Pops, finding out what people knew about. No, nobody <laughs> asked and heard of, of Athelstan, who is, you know, he is the glorious. Athelstan the glorious. The first king of England. I think it's Athelstan the forgotten. <laughs> you know, we have <laughs> Ethelred the unready and we yeah. have Athelstan the forgotten. <laughs> it's so unfair. And, you know, victor of the great battle, um, you know, he was a great administrator too. Uh, so I think this is a slam dunk in the cabinet and, uh, you know, let's move on. Well, I think he should be in the cabinet. You're not going to have me push back against you. But as interesting as his rule is, it's why has he been forgotten? Because I, it's something which I've said to David before. You know, when we, I think when we did the very first episode, which was 1066, those Norman kings have been so good at changing our perception of English history. You know, all the kings starting with uh, with one. It's William the first. You know, yeah. it's uh, it's Edward the first. Even though there were a couple of kings called Edward beforehand and stuff. So, with the exception, there you go. Yeah. There you go. So, there's three kings. Which I think the average Brit or the average English person, I should say, is actually heard of. Though we we don't necessarily know that much about two of them. Alfred the Great. Mm-hmm. Everyone's heard of him. 
scones. Yep. He burnt them. Then you've got Ethelred the Unready. And we only remember his name because it sounds so ridiculous. Ethelred <laughs> the Unready. And, and then King Canute. Yeah. And I don't think unready actually means what we think it means. I think it means poorly no, counseled means, or something. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. He didn't read. He couldn't read. Right. That, that, that was it. Yeah. And then we got King Canute. Yeah. Now, but if you were to ask the average English person, what were the singular accomplishments of any of these kings, apart from the burning of some cakes, uh, they're going to be like, they're going to scratch their heads. Or they're going to say, well, you know. Attempting to push back some water, which uh, didn't work. And also, I there mean, King Canute, King Canute was a Dane. There you I go. mean, obviously, in all of these times, that everyone basically came from the same sort of area of Northern Europe, whether they were Saxons, mm-hmm. Jutes, Angles, Vikings, or whatever, um, or Normans, eventually, of course, they were all the same lot. I think, though, Luke, you should uh, plough on with Athelstan, because um, I'm going to call him Athelstan the Forgotten, but by the end of it, he's going to be rediscovered, reclaimed. Well, I very much The most hope English so. of Englishmen. <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> Um, obviously, where do you go if you need to uh, do a sort of bit of background uh, research on early uh, Anglo-Saxon, early Anglo-Saxon England? Uh, I go back to the chronicles. I go to an old dusty abbey somewhere. Oh, right. right? <laughs> Preferably in Norfolk. Okay, very and, good. Because my old English is is very good. Right. I can read it in its original form. Yeah. Right, and uh, that's where I go <laughs> to find out about Anglo-Saxon kings of old. So, right, so where do you go? You're going to say Wikipedia, aren't you? I'm, no, no, I'm going to say bead or nothing. No, no, no. I, there's only one place to go, and uh, that is to the history of England. Um, oh. And uh, so David did some uh, lovely, uh, you know, remodeled, recrafted versions of his early episodes. And uh, so the ones that, you, if you want to sort of listen in more depth to somebody who knows a lot more about this thing than I do, then I would recommend listening to episodes 9, 10, and 11, which cover mm-hmm. Alfred the Great's death, Edward the Elder, and his sister Athelfled. And then episode 11 is the one that's actually about uh, Athelstan. And if you're really lucky, you get to hear David reading uh, the poem of uh, the Battle of Brunnenberg, which we'll be talking about later. And you can actually get the full poem in Old English, which I'm sure is the, the one that you would go to immediately, um, Royfield. This, uh, yeah, Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I did listen to the whole thing. I'm not sure I caught a lot of it, but actually there's a, there's a very good translation by Tennyson of the poem, which is very, it's a Tennyson poem, really. And that's mm-hmm. definitely worth a, worth a listen. Um, let's uh, sort of run through some of the sort of uh, key facts. Problem is with Athelstan, and I think this actually might go some of the way to answer your your point about why he is the, the Athelstan, the forgotten, as you would like to call him, is that we don't actually know an awful lot about him. You know, where Alfred the Great had the, the monk Asser, who was his sort of biographer or hagiographer, if you want to look at it like that. There is no PR good, person. PR person, <laughs> yeah, to put it into today's speak. Bin doctor. <laughs> <laughs> the Dominic Cummins. <laughs> no, dear, no, sorry. <laughs> uh, yeah, so th- then there was no equivalent for Athelstan, so there's not the sort of written record that we could turn to in, mm. you know, in our old English, as good as it might be. He was born sort of 895 or there or thereabouts. Um, again, we, as often, we don't know when these people were born. He died in 939 and then acceded to the throne in 924. He was crowned, uh, and this is quite key, he was crowned king of the Anglo-Saxons and not actually as of the West Saxons, which um, his father mm-hmm. was. He came from the line of Serdic, 
um, which was the, the line that gave us Alfred the Great. So Athelstan was the grandson of Alfred the Great. He was the son of Edward the Elder, possibly the bastard son of Edward the Elder, again, which is uh, something that might have caused problems. Um, and then then nephew of Athelfled, the, the Lady of the Mercians. Okay, so can you give us, just remind us of how England was constituted when he was born? Obviously, I am a proud yeah. son of Birmingham, so yeah. I'm a Mercian. You're a Mercian. What were the other English kingdoms or well, provinces? Were yes, there? I mean, this, this, this is the end of Mercia. Uh, but yeah, I thought as a proud <laughs> Midlander, you might be a bit sad about that one. But yes, yeah, so, well, I mean, you know, the sort of basic sort of context was that the, the Vikings had invaded, taken over large swathes of, of England right down to Wessex was the last sort of holdout, which was where Alfred the Great was from. So Alfred the Great was the king of Wessex. He wasn't the king of England or anything close to it. In fact, at one point, he was just sort of holed out in a sort of marshy area. But he re-established the, the, the kingdom of Wessex and basically came to an agreement with the Vikings to divide the country, largely sort of running uh, sort of... Well, basically, the Vikings were in the north and east of the country, um, and the Anglo-Saxons had the sort of south and, and west of the country. That, that area was called Danelaw, and as the, 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 mm -hmm. the Danes were in charge of it. And so that would have comprised mostly of the ancient Anglo-Saxon kingdoms of uh, East Anglia and Northumbria um, and Kent. Alfred sort of made Wessex strong again, handed over to his son, Edward the Elder, who was king of Wessex, and he was the one who retook the southern part of Danelaw. So he retook East Anglia and Kent and made London um, uh, Anglo-Saxon again. Um, while in the meantime, uh, Athelfled, who was Edward's sister, had married the king or the lord of Mercia. He wasn't a king, um, who was a you know a client of of the kings of Wessex. And so between them, between Athelfled and uh, Edward, the the Danes were basically left with just Northumbria in the, in the northeast, and because Athelstan was possibly the bastard son of Edward, and Edward remarried another woman, had more children with her. Athelstan was banished from Wessex and had to go and stay with his aunt in Mercia, so he had very strong connections with Mercia. Uh, but on the death of Athelfled, her daughter tried to take over for a while. I mean, Athelfled is a, an amazing person in, in her own right. For a woman to be running what was considered a country was really quite amazing in the sort of ninth, well, tenth century. So on her death, Mercia was no longer independent and became part of of Wessex. So at that stage, when when Athelstan came to the throne, he was that therefore crowned king of the Anglo Saxons, whereas before he would have been king king of Wessex. So would he have had a separate coronation in Wessex and in Mercia? No, I don't think so, because by that time, Mercia wasn't considered a kingdom. Mm -hmm. Athelflaed okay. and her husband were the lord and lady of Mercia rather than the king and queen of Mercia. All right, gotcha. Um, the key thing that he did, one of the first things that he did was to take York, which was obviously called Jorvik at the time, which was the, the capital of Northumbria. And that's when he became the king of the English. And that was when he was really first caught. There was a, the concept of the king of the English. Had there been any moves 
prior to have a king of all the English, the the Anglish, the Angles uh, beforehand? No, I don't think so. I I, I suppose it, it was definitely a dream of of Alfred's, but I think there were sort of senior kings like um, Pender um, mm-hmm. or Offer. Good Mercian um, king. Yeah, yep. yeah. There was all good strong Mercians in the glory days of Mercia. But, yeah, it's, it's quite a while ago that the Midlands were the, the, the leading. Sorry, no, no. they were definitely separate kingdoms, and though some of them would have been subservient to the other, like the Kingdom of mm-hmm. Kent. I think the Kingdom of Kent was a, quite a strong kingdom, but uh, then became part of East Anglia. Okay, gotcha. All right, so so this is what nine twenty four? Did you say? Yes, he came to the throne in 924, quite quickly moved on and uh, took York. York had been held by uh, a Danish lord called Citric, who was actually Edward the Elder's brother-in-law. And so, you know, vaguely sort of family related. But I think he died before Athelstan moved into York. And so that was that was the, the point where it really was England and recognisably England in the geography that it is today. Cornwall is uh, a bit of a weird one. I'd say Cornwall was sort of semi-independent, was still peopled by the Brits rather than, or the British, rather than Anglo-Saxons. The Anglo-Saxons had never really taken Cornwall and it sort of, it had a slightly different relationship. But other than Cornwall, <laughs> we had the, the England that we would recognise today. Mm. So how different, and this is a, I, I absolutely don't know the answer to this, so when his army rolls into York, how different culturally would York have been from, let's say, Mercy or from Wessex? Do we have any idea? Obviously, I know that they these people there are English, but they've been ruled for a little time by Viking overlords, haven't they? Yes, but I, th- I mean, I suppose the the key differentiator, and I'm no expert, but the key differentiator would be religion. The Anglo-Saxons were uh, Christian and very proudly mm-hmm. Christian. Alfred was, you know, a very strong proponent of Christianity, as was Athelstan. And, the, you know, they funded churches and monks and abbeys and everything. And whereas, obviously, the Vikings were pagan. Some Vikings seem to, or Viking kings, seem to have converted, but it's, oh, I think, often for, uh, you know, political reasons. Citric. So I think this, this Citric, who was in York, when he married mm-hmm. Ed, Edward's daughter, um, he became a Christian. But I don't think anyone's massively convinced by this. Gotcha. So we now have a king of, of all the English. But Northumberland back then went all the way up to, literally to Edinburgh, didn't it? It didn't quite stop on uh, a Berwick, as, as we kind of understand well, it. Well, no, th- there was one small... It's a bit like sort of the, the village of Asterix, but there was one small hangout that was still uh, Anglo-Saxon. That was uh, Banbrook. And, mm-hmm. you know, so, you know, I said that, that that it was the north and the east that was handed over to the Vikings. But except for Banbrook, which is in the very northest and most eastern point, and that, mm-hmm. you know, because it's a very, very powerful, very well-defended castle, um, never fell to, to the Vikings and was always held by the Anglo-Saxons. And actually, this is something I wanted to talk about. Was have you followed the the Last Kingdom series with by Bernard Cornwall? I, I haven't, but I tell you what, I have watched. Before you come on and tell me about that, I used to watch the Vikings series. Oh yes, yeah. And seasons 
two and three, there's a lot of messing around in, in Wessex. Yeah, and Northumbria. Mm-hmm. Yes. Don't want to spoil it too much. Yes, uh, so if you like the Vikings, you'll probably like the Last Kingdom series. It's basically, you know, mm-hmm. if you're really into shield walls, it's uh, it's the uh-huh. go- go-to series. But I, I've been reading the books. They, to be honest, have gone on a bit. I think I'm on book 12 or something. And you kind of feel you should be wrapping it up by now. But that's all based around this guy called Uther, who uh, is fictional. But he mm. is the Anglo-Saxon lord of Bambra. And, uh-huh. and actually doing, doing research for this um, for this episode uh, has been a complete spoiler for, for my uh, Last Kingdom series because I sort of found out that uh, Athelstan did eventually take Bambra as well. So he didn't just take danish northumbria he took anglo-saxon anglo-saxon northumbria in the stories um uther and athelstan have an oath and so by doing the research for this i've seen that that athelstan's going to break his oath to uther at some point which is a great shame because uther's a dude i'm wondering right so i think we all we understand from school looking back at the reign of alfred the great etc and the dane or in the vikings that england was a patchwork of kingdoms but what we don't have is this rich law of the reconquest, of the unification, mm. in a way that I was just reading about uh, last week about the Spanish reconquest. Yeah. So we, what we don't have is like, this, like the Spanish story of the slow driving out of the Moors. And I wonder why that is, because I didn't know about Banbra. You know, I, I have a, an idea of the of the construct of, of, of this, and and I'm sure it's really down again to um, to Billy the Conk mm. and, and his descendants that yeah. you know they've rewritten English history so that even the you know the the glorious victorious um, in, uh, ascent north of Athelstan and his armies which starts with his father, um, you know, it's just, it's not part no. of English mythology at all. No, I know. And it is very similar, you know. I mean, if you think of sort of Wessex as being the Asturias of the, of the Reconquista, then the, 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 there is hey. something... I, 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 like, I like that little accent shift uh, you just uh, did yeah. then. <laughs> very authentic. Yeah. Um, but no, but they do, they, they're, there are definitely things in common between the two. And I don't know why we haven't mythologized it in the same way that, you know, 1066 is totally mythologized. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I suppose the Alfred against the Vikings thing is, is that, you know, that I, I did a project against about it when I was about 10 and I've still got my little notebook um, and I loved it. Uh, one of the things I really didn't know about was the Battle of Brunaber. And uh, the, were you on the, all, all over that one? I wouldn't quite say I'm all over it, but I I, I know of it. I know of it. So. Yeah, no, it's and it's fantastic. Um, so again, they don't quite know when it happened, but probably sort of late in the year nine three seven, um, and mm-hmm. uh, I'm not quite sure where it where is Brudebo, but um, they reckon it's probably sort of in the Wirral somewhere in the in the northwest, um, and that was a, a classic area for viking invasions because there were lots of vikings based in ireland um mm-hmm. so they would sail up the mersey and you could sell quite a long way on on, on the viking long, long boats along the mersey so 
so you could penetrate really quite far into England, um, which is actually quite, you know, where you feel that York is going to be a long way from from Dublin, but um, because they could sail quite, quite a long way through, it was quite easily connected. Um, mm. And, you know, Athelstan being uh, king of England and doing what kings of England do had um, quite quickly invaded both Scotland and Wales and uh, made the king of the Scots and the various king, Welsh kings, um, you know, kneel to him or whatever it might be, um, take the knee. Too right to, sir. Too right to. <laughs> Careful what you say. <laughs> I say that very tongue-in-cheek for the remaining constituent parts of the United Kingdom, which will not remain part of this country for too much longer. No, no, no. <laughs> my, my Scottish blood sort of stirs at moments like that. Um, but, uh, yes, yeah, so they were all fairly fed up with him and they could see that, you know, they, they, they could see the way it was going, that this guy was going to be the sort of main power, that the, the English were going to take over the, the whole island. And he had gone around um, calling himself the king of the whole of Britain um, and mm -hmm. minted coins with this on it. So it was fairly clear what his plans were. Um, so a, a confederation of uh, various kings. There was uh, Constantine, the, the king of the Scots. And uh, this is going to be difficult to pronounce. Olaf Guthfriston, um, who was a, a Viking warlord from Dublin and he, who was wanting to reestablish the Viking control of York. Um, and Owain, the king of Strathclyde. Um, and this is a massive battle. Um, and, you know, it's, it's known as uh, the Great Battle um, or the Great War. Um, David, in his uh, episode, is very clear about the fact that it was fairly inconclusive, even though it was a great um, English Anglo-Saxon victory. Um, the, the Cornish chipped in on the side of this, this anti-Anglo-Saxon confederation. And this kind of seems to have been pretty much the sort of last hurrah of the Cornish as an independent uh, people. Um, and it really is one of the most uh, important battles in, in British history. But again, <laughs> it's one that we don't seem to know an awful lot about. Um, there is uh, an epic poem, uh, which I think I mentioned before, which, you know, there's the Anglo-Saxon version and the Tennyson version. Um, but, you know, to be honest, it's got much more about, you know, how the sort of sun rose and then the sun sank and, uh, all the dead bodies scattered on the, on the battlefield. It's, it's, it's uh, really quite gruesome. Um, but there's not an awful lot about the sort of actual tactics of what's worked on in the battle. Um, there was a shield wall. You always got to have a shield wall and these sort of things. Yep. Sorry. I've always thought it was. When I when I think about that battle, the fact that so you had uh, the Irish forward slash Vikings come over from Dublin, you had a couple of kings from Scotland, one the king of the Scots, one the king of Strathclyde, and then you have uh, Welsh kings princes fighting as well, and then you throw in the Cornish. The thing that's always amazed me is that how did they? communicate to coordinate mm. that all the armies were going to get there yeah you know it's just beggar's belief yeah. you know in 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 an age where um you know communication was at you know the speed of foot 
right, that you have Scots coordinating with the Irish, coordinating with the Welsh and the Cornish. Boy, let's all meet up on the Mersey yeah. and let's go, go for the English. And also, in, you know, and, and getting the enemy there as, as well. Yeah. <laughs> you know, to actually sort of all meet together to get this battle. Yeah, I know. It's amazing. Um, mm. Yes, and because that confederation is unusual in that, you know, Constantine, the king of the Scots, was a proud Christian and mm-hmm. um, presumably the Welsh as well. And they were teaming up with these Viking pagans. Um, and that would have been considered a bit of a no-no. Um, especially as I think Constantine had, you know, sworn fealty to Athelstan and so on. Um, and so he, you know, he, there's, there's some stuff about the treacherous Scot. So had to scamper from the battlefield and left his dead son on the battlefield. And uh, yeah, they're not very, not very complimentary about the Scots in, in the, in the poem. Um, yes. And, but I think it, it is a, symbolically it's quite sort of uh quite important as a battle because it really is where the english sort of become imperialists um you know the 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 sort of and i think if we ever do an episode on the empire which i hope we do one day i think there's the the sort of imperialist urge is quite english i know that you know the scottish were very involved in the empire and so on but um the, the, it feels like that real sort of desire to conquer comes from the the, the English part of Britain, um, and this is where, to me, it's kind of started because this is where the Anglo-Saxon, the English, uh, were defeating and you know bringing to submission to the Welsh and the 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 Scots and in, in a certain extent the Irish in the Viking form. Um, so yeah, I think it, it's it, it's a fundamental battle in in our history, and and uh, one we should probably try and find out a bit more about at least <laughs> where it happened. On top of all these sort of martial glories, um, Athelstan was a, a great administrator. Um, he brought in some very important legal reforms um, that particularly dealt with robbery, and I, he seemed to sort of really focus on robbery as a as a crime. But probably, you know, it sort of, it was an urge for him that now, you know, after such sort of terrible times of fighting and civil wars and battles against Vikings and so on, that he was trying to bring some sort of peace to the land and to regulate the land and to make it into to somewhere that, that wasn't constantly at war with itself. Um, Do we have any idea how different the jurisdictions would have been in the various different bits of England? Um, I think we do. Um, I wouldn't necessarily have them to hand, but yeah, that's something that, that David covers very nicely about, you know, how the shires came into being and what's the, the difference mm-hmm. between the shires and the hundreds. Um, I, I imagine that they would have, you know, the, the different sort of mini kingdoms that had been would have had their own forms of administration and they would have tried to maintain them to a certain extent because you know, looking at it from our perspective, this is the founding of England and it feels sort of slightly inevitable that it should have happened because it did. Um, but, mm-hmm. you know, the the East Anglians would have seen that the, this was an invasion of the West, people of Wessex. I don't know how do you say that, Wessexians? No, can't be. The people of Wessex. <laughs> um, because, you know, <laughs> who were their age-old enemies. Um, they'd been, mm-hmm. you know, in fighting between before the Vikings had ever arrived. So 
it wouldn't have been seen. I mean, there might have, I suppose there might have been some sort of, at least these guys are Christians. Um, but, you know, to a certain extent, they might not have seen them as, as great liberators um, coming to, to save them because they, they, were, they were the enemy. Um, he, he wanted uh, a stable kingdom. Yeah. He um, had good governance. And he was rather pious as well, wasn't he? He kind of mentioned before that the the Anglo-Saxon kings ran in for a bit of God-bothering, didn't they? Very much they, so. They liked yeah. all of them. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, uh, yes, so he founded a number of, of abbeys. I think it was Malmesbury, one of his. Yes, and I think that that's the other thing, that one of the key parts of Athelstan's reign is he started making sort of connections with other European Christian potentates. Mm-hmm. And and I think that that's quite key, and that's probably, you know, as the sort of, you know, the devastation that the Vikings brought to England and the, the rest of Western Europe um, was beginning to sort of uh, get sorted out. I imagine that uh, the cross fertilization, as it were, between all of the Christian kingdoms could sort of flourish again. Um, so mm-hmm. Athelstan, so Athelstan never married and didn't have any children. But he was one of 13 children of Edward the Elder. And one of the key things he did was making connections with Europe by marrying off his uh, many sisters to various um, European kings. Um, so wait a minute. We could now call him Athelstan the Unpotent. Because, oh. like, you know... You know there's, there's, You're keen on giving him some fairly derogatory nicknames here. <laughs> <laughs> Can't we, the glorious. Oh. Well, it's very handy that he didn't have um, that he didn't have any children to a certain extent because there were then he could just hand on to his brothers. Because so when he came, when he came to the throne, so his mother had or had not married Edward, and so there was talk of the fact that he wasn't legitimate, and Edward married. Um, a second wife who was the daughter of one of the most powerful uh, lords of Wessex. Very much a political move. And it mm-hmm. looks like Athelstan was kind of sidelined at that point. So that's when he went up to Mercia to live with his aunt Athelfled. Um, so El- Elfweird appears. Elfweird was given Wessex and Athelstan uh, was given Mercia. But fortunately, Elfweird died. So that's when Mercia and uh, Wessex were unified under Athelstan. Um, and as I was saying, so he married off his sisters. Um, his mm-hmm. apparently very beautiful sister, Edith, seemed to have been uh, slightly luckier because she married Otto the Great, the Saxon emperor. Oh. Yep. Um, who the I named, German king. Oh, yep. Yeah, I named my son after him, actually. My son's also called Otto. Oh, wow. But handy name if you want to invade Europe. Um, <laughs> um, but uh, uh, Athelstan's other sister, Iadjfu, Iadjfu, I'm not quite sure how we say that, mm-hmm. uh, was sound slightly less fortunate. She got married to Charles the Simple, oh. King of France. Yeah, it's not a French, yeah, yeah, yeah. As, as French kings go. Yeah, yeah he yeah. wasn't up yeah. there, was he? No, I mean, there are a few called the bald and the fat and something like that. So. That's both the simple. I simple could be it's a, of simple tastes. I, d- I don't know enough about it, I'm afraid. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it does not mean that. Because no. <laughs> <laughs> if, if, if it was a medieval king of simple tastes, would have called him pious, wouldn't yes, they? Yes, it would have been Charles yes. the Pious. Yes, so they'd have loved He was simple because he just wasn't. 
particularly clever. Just a little Yeah. And so, yes, yeah, so I think, you know, in, in essence, what we have here is, you know, something that is definitely a thing that made England in the fact that he is the first king of England. Of the, He might be slightly lesser known, but I think that that's probably reflects. There's no that. slightly about Luke. There's no slightly about it. No one's <laughs> heard of him. No one's heard of him. Well, they do now. No, they have now. You know, you know no, no, no one's heard of him. And, and it, it is a shame. And as I say, I, I blame uh, William the Conqueror and the Plantagenets, the Normans, et al. that come yeah. afterwards, really. Because it is a, it's a wonderful story of uh, the foundation of, of the country. Um, it has all the elements. It's got battles. It's got uh, marriage. Yeah. It's got, um, you know, the, the slow, re- relentless march north to, to, you know, to retake these, these territories. And it's just not part of the national consciousness. It just isn't. No. Yes, it's in, yes, it's in dusty old books. Yeah. And, um, and, 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 it, and it's kind of, it's ironic, if that's is that really the word, that um, how it's being played back out to us is through the sagas, the stories of, of other nations. You know, it's like the Vikings, etc. You yeah. know, that great series. Um, and the Anglo-Saxon king, and I forget the name of the king who's portrayed in, in the Vikings series, he's incredibly cultured and urbane. Yeah. And yeah, he's, he's Machiavellian, but you know, he comes over as a, a, somebody of great culture. Yeah. And we just associate that bit of English history with blood guts, mud huts, and not much else. And it's not right. Yeah. Cause you look at, you look at, um, the treasures at Sutton Hoo and they, they beg a belief into the ornateness and the beauty of them. So. Anglo-Saxon culture was something actually to be revered and to be um, admired all throughout Europe, but it just—it's kind of lost. It's just kind of lost, and and I just think Athelstan. We we need to reclaim him. We really absolutely do. How we do that? It starts here. (laughs) Really, the fight back starts here, does it? (laughs) Well, I think actually there's a very good. uh, There's some new penguin. Uh, books as a, and you know the historian Tom Holland. Um, he's uh, no. no, no, he's brilliant, he, and he's written the one on Athelstan. But these are a slight. Mm-hmm. They're, they're not. I've, I've sort of found one thinking, hey, great, it's going to be a, you know uh, like the Ladybird books. No, the Ladybird books. The Ladybird books evolved with lots of pictures and stuff. These ones are quite te- mm-hmm. text heavy. Um, but no, I really recommend that because um, he's a, he's a. Fan, well, do, you, so, right. do you struggle with with books with, with lots of text in dear Luke? Oh yes, I, I, I need big space, <laughs> big spaces to fit my finger through. <laughs> Follow the words. <laughs> yeah, I do like a picture. Um, yeah, no, and yes, yeah, so I say definitely. I think we should we should be reclaiming this guy who you know, and it's very interesting what you're saying about the culture. You know, both Athelstan and Alfred the Great were very literate, were very cultured people who really wanted to promote that whole um promote literacy um alfred used to get really annoyed if he found out that his lords couldn't speak um couldn't read he thought that was that was a key part of of 
you know, being an important person in the in the kingdom. Um, which you know, and Athelstan was trying to sort of recreate to a certain extent the sort of cultured court of, of Charlemagne. Um, mm-hmm. you know, from uh, so hundred years before that. Um and you know, Charlemagne was famous for sort of trying to bring all the intellectuals of of the land to 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 his court. Um and actually the the St Dunstan um started his career who had quite a key role uh, in the future uh, after Athelstan but he he started his his career in court at uh, the court of Athelstan although i think they clashed quite a bit so so he conks out in 939 yeah. Athelstan so um, who takes it? So what's his immediate legacy? You said that the, I know the Vikings grab back York and hold it for about another 20 years or so. But is that maybe another one of the reasons why he doesn't, even though he is the first king of all the English or the king, king of England, he doesn't quite get the props he deserves because yeah. um, whatever he set in place, it got rolled back quite quickly, didn't it? Yes. Yes. I mean, I think virtually immediately afterwards the vikings did retake york so that was a very short-lived uh, moment um and then and it's it's quite interesting to think of the dates where you know we're in 939 mm-hmm. and we then we got 1066 so you know barely 100 years later the normans are arriving but that whole sort of viking you know the canute story and all of that lot has got to fit into those 100 years after mm. Athelstan and before, um, well, before Edward the Confessor and Harold and all that, and and Ethelred the Unready, and yeah, you've got to get him in, yeah, 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 Hardy Canute, wow. all those, yeah, you know, those those weird, weird and wonderful, yeah, uh, Saxon Viking, Spain kings. fork beard, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, but right, so, but this is where mm-hmm. the concept of England started. So it might have Ooh. gone, it might have been reinvaded, and it was invaded by Normans. I don't want to split hairs. The concept of England doesn't start there, but the political reality of them being in England started there. Right. So you might you think Alfred conceived it. This isn't the first conceptual idea of, of an England, but it's the first political reality because there had been Brett Welders or Brett Valders. In, in other words, um, the most powerful English king at a certain time claimed to have overlordship of other English kingdoms. And so offer good mercy and king. Um, he was a Brett welder. You know, he claimed overlordship of Sussex and Kent and even Wessex at, at, at a point, but he never had necessarily direct political, political control over all these different bits of the English realm, so to speak. Or the realm of the English, but I, I imagine that in, in in a way, the they they would have had something in common. They were Angos, the Saxons, and the Jutes would have come over yeah. more or less at the same time. They would have had something in common, and they, you, you know, they would have been the most powerful one amongst them, who would have been the Breitfelder, um, some sort mm-hmm. of king of kings. But I I reckon it's because of the reconquest that does sort of forge your identity. You know, you you mentioned the Spanish before. The concept of Spain didn't really exist um, until the Reconquista. You know that before that had been Asturias, Galicia, uh, León, and mm-hmm. etc. Um, and and I think that is a very sort of powerful 
moment in forging a nation, um, in forging a country, is that sort of invasion. It, it's you know setting yourself against a conceived common enemy that makes you gives you mm. your identity. True, uh, but I think we might be having a semantic argument here I because I, I see the the Spanish reconquest is different in that those Spanish kingdoms, Castile, Leon. Um, uh, Aragon and um, goodness, Navarre, right? They saw themselves, what bounded them together was that they were Christian against the Muslim horde. Yes, but the same thing. uh, uh, Yes, yes, but with the Bretwalder, there was a concept of an overlordship of all of the English. And it was a concept. Mm, uh, yeah. Whereas Castile and Leon, they get reunited, they get united, not reunited, united through marriage. It wasn't a case of the Castilians and people from Leon said, you know what, wouldn't it be great if one day all of the Iberian Peninsula was one Christian kingdom? There were competing Christian kingdoms. There was never an idea of overlordship. Uh I would have to check that because they they were the vandals. No, they weren't vandals. What were they? Visigoths. 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 They're Visigoths. And so whether they, as Visigoths, they would have had some sort of common bound, and whether there was some sort of king of kings of the Visigoths, I I don't know. But mm. I I do know that they you know that they fought against each other. You know, you the story of El Cid is like like, like yeah like yeah. rats in a in a bag. Yeah, yeah. yeah they were yeah. terrible. Yeah. Um, and, yeah. you know, they were fighting alongside uh, the Moors as much as they were fighting alongside their fellow Christians. Absolutely. And that's in, in large part the reason why the the, uh, the Moors hung on for the hundreds of years that yeah. they did, because yeah. these Christian kingdoms were going at it with each yeah. other all the time. Yeah. Anyway, this is the history of England, not the history of, Spain. Uh, <laughs> of Iberian Spain. Right. <laughs> so, so, so shall we shall we pause yep. and just say um, why don't we check out what's happening on uh, on the social media roundup in terms of because I'm sure I've got stunning plaudits from everybody for my uh, uh, majestic sweep of the history Richly of the Bank deserved. of England. I, I, absolutely, I like that good, good wordplay from the Bank of England. It was richly deserved. Thank you for that. Luke. I'm here all night. Yeah. Hello, Angley. Fiona Powell here with the Social Media Roundup. The old lady of Threadneedle Street, or the Bank of England. Royfield proposed it, and Luke was an excellent foil, providing us with additional information. Before I launch into the Roundup, may I make bold and nudge Royfield on the shoulder a little? You called it the Daddy Bank, Royfield. Surely, as she is the old lady, she should be Mummy Bank. Royfield outlined rather well the connection between the bank and the slave trade, and I thought you might like to know that William Wilberforce teamed up in 1787 with Thomas Clarkson and others, including an amazing and often forgotten woman called Hannah Moore. My other little nudge to Royfield is to say, (coughs) Royfield, 16 whatever, Plymouth Rock and all that. Oh dear, 
1607, first Jamestown Colony, Virginia, three ships, Susan Constant, Godspeed and Discovery, although it wasn't the first colony, but we haven't time to discuss Roanoke. Apropos of nothing, in 1618, a Welshman called Thomas Powell ventured to Jamestown to give it a go. His giving it a go didn't work out very well. Anyway, he was my eighth great-grandfather. December 1620, Plymouth Colony, Massachusetts, the Pilgrims, the Mayflower, and all that. And alas, they too enslaved people, not only from Africa, but Native Americans as well. In August of 1682, the Welcome sailed from Deal in Kent with William Penn and a bunch of Quakers to the new Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. No slavery allowed. Luke posted a link to a wonderful article on why the Bank of England is called the Old Lady of Threadneedle Street. Duncan Dix said, Sterling episode. Royfield cashes in on David's absence, to coin a phrase. I really felt I got my money's worth. It's a banker. Michelle Gerrish began with a very fine argument. She said, this might be the first time I didn't vote for something to go into the cabinet. Royfield did a very nice job with the history and I would definitely put it in the British cabinet, but not the English. And on an emotional level, it just doesn't stir up warm feelings for England like, say, HP Source or The Archers or 1066 does. But I have two questions. One, are you sure there are bars of gold in the vault and not rolls of toilet paper? <laughs> and here's where she shot herself in the foot. Two, when do sheep get to go in the cabinet? Oh, Michelle, you began brilliantly and then you broke my heart. And your punishment is that you are coming with me to Wales to gaze upon sheep. Holly Martin said, I think this is the first time I fully bought Royfield's argument hook, line and sinker for financing the Navy alone. This belongs in the cabinet. Bill Debbie Pendleton began with, while on board as a whole, I beg to differ with the slight disparagement of the British Army during the Napoleonic Wars. He then went on with, quite a fascinating post which really stirred the pot that entire thread regarding the bank of england battles banks of england it's all worth reading do check it out marilyn little ended that thread with i agree it has to go in because of all of the reasons noted above it was after all established in 1694 before England embarked on the union with Scotland, so I'll take it as ours. Rowena Card thought it was a good episode and agreed about it being cabinet-worthy. Then she was worried about missing the vote. You didn't miss the vote, Rowena. We wouldn't let you. I deliberately waited until we were all ready before preparing the roundup. Or I could procrastinate for Wales if we had our own team in the Olympics. Pick your own favourite excuse. Including Rowena, 64 people voted for the Bank of England to go into the cabinet. Seven people deemed it not cabinet worthy. There is a lot of activity on the Facebook page. We've got Daleks roaming around Whitby. And as someone who knows the town well, I'm not in the least bit surprised. Chocolate oranges and sheep and sheep and more sheep and football and sheep and Halifax in the 1920s. Tune in, turn on and comment. And until we meet again, this old lady who's not from anywhere near London says, stay safe, stay well.
And thank you very much for that excellent roundup. And uh, I think we can call it a day with Athelstan safely in the cabinet. Um, and looking forward to the, the next show, which will be in a couple of weeks from now, I hope. Uh, yes, uh, absolutely. Don't know what we're going to talk about yet, but uh, I'll bring my A game. I know that. But what we do want to hear uh, from you, though, listener, is why do you think um, Athelstan has been overlooked in the annals of the English national consciousness? Why is it that this uh, the first the first of all Englishmen, so to speak, has just been negated and, and neglected? in terms of anybody's idea of really what constitutes the country. You know, he isn't a great heroic figure. In, you know, there aren't BBC One docu- uh, documentaries or dramas about him reconstructing uh, the, the, his life, though there have been about his grandpops, Alfred the Great. Indeed. So uh, why not? And uh, Luke said it starts here. You know, we're going to reclaim him here. So why don't you uh, start that good fight? on our Facebook page. Go there and tell us how we can reclaim and uh, big up First King of all the English. Excellent. Thank you, Mr. Baxter. You give me an Thank education, sir. <laughs> Thank you. This is great, great fun. Thank you very much. And speak soon. Bye-bye. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.